my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That yeah. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, you're never dead, well, hasn't died yet, host Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode covers island zombies, demon ghouls, and unruly returners. Lots of people coming back from the grave in this one. Before we jump into things, here's an annoying reminder that I set up an email address for the podcast. If you want to brighten or ruin my day, why not send an email to blankisthekiller at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you gorgeous listeners. Recommend things, complain about dumb stuff I've said, ask riveting questions, send anything you want to blankisthekiller at gmail.com. And I'll give you a shout out in the next episode. Now, there's going to be a lot of zombies in this episode, so make sure you're wearing bite-proof clothing. I recommend full-body chainmail. Number 1. Zombie. Originally titled Zombie 2, 1979, directed by Lucio Fulci. A woman named Anne and a guy she meets named Peter go looking for her father on an island called Matul after her father's boat is found in New York with a zombie aboard. The duo is taken to the island by Brian and Susan. On the way, a zombie fights a shark. On the island, a doctor named Menard is trying to cure people infected by a strange disease that turns them into zombies when they die. His wife is eaten by zombies. Zombies end up killing everyone but Anne and Peter who make it back to the boat where they hear on the radio that the zombie outbreak is everywhere. A strange disease and zombies are the killers. Why was this movie originally released as Zombie 2? Well, you see, George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead came out in Italy in 1978, retitled as Zombie, and was a huge success. So, Zombie 2 was falsely marketed as a sequel against both Romero and Fulci's wishes. A lot of zombie movies were marketed as sequels to Dawn of the Dead and Zombie around that time. Zombie is the first Lucio Fulci movie I've seen. Fulci is referred to as the godfather of gore due to his heavy emphasis on graphic violence in a bunch of his movies. The man directed around 60 movies across all genres, but his cult following is mostly due to his giallo and horror movies. He did a trilogy of films called the Gates of Hell trilogy, which includes City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and The House by the Cemetery. I'll be covering The Beyond a bit later on in this episode. So given that Mr. Fulci is the godfather of gore, how's the gore? Practical and disgusting. There's a reason why the UK labeled zombie a video nasty. 
The zombies bite meaty chunks off their human meals. These bites are incredibly well done. Unlike most bite wounds in zombie movies, the wounds in zombie are deep. Flesh and muscle is ripped from the bones. The zombies in the movie aren't leaving cute little bite marks. These zombies are just about starving tonight and really sink their teeth into their victims. The editing for these chomps is great. It really looks like the people on screen are the ones being bitten. I know that eye destruction is the norm these days, but I'm pretty sure it was shocking and fresh in 1979. In Zombie, a woman's eye is penetrated by a splintered piece of wood. A zombie grabs her by the hair and slowly pulls her face towards a sharp broken piece of a door. I'm desensitized to this kind of eyeball stuff now, but I'm pretty sure people back then lost their minds during this particular scene. Other notable gore in Zombie includes Susan's blood gushing out of her neck after a zombie hickey. The effect packs a punch and seeing Susan's body completely covered in blood from the wound is awesome. When it comes to the makeup effects for the zombies, some of the zombies look horrifying and others just look like paper mache messes. The best zombies look really good and the bad ones look really bad. Zombies having worms and maggots coming out of eye sockets and face wounds is a great idea, but the execution wasn't always on point. Overall, all the gore and most of the makeup effects are fantastic. Gianetto de Rossi was in charge of the effects. He also worked on high tension. Yes, a zombie does fight a shark. A real shark. Lucio Fulci didn't want this in the movie, and the sequence was shot without his approval. He thought it would be too silly. I mean, it's incredibly silly, and if I'm being completely honest, it's kind of lame. If you're a horror fan, you probably know about the zombie shark fight, even if you haven't seen Zombie. I've been hyping up the scene for years in my mind, and it didn't live up to my expectations. It's still a spectacle, and I'm glad it's in the movie. How was it done? The zombie was played by the shark's trainer, Ramon Bravo. Bravo made sure that the tiger's shark had a big dinner and also slipped it some tranquilizers before shooting the scene. Safety first. The acting in Zombie is pretty terrible from most of the cast. All the dialogue is dubbed. Since, like a lot of Italian movies during this period, half the cast only spoke English and the other half only spoke Italian. There are long stretches without exciting zombie action. If you're a super fan of the zombie genre or someone interested in horror history, Zombie is a must watch. I don't recommend Zombie to the average horror fan though, given how hard it drags in places. Number 2, The Church, 1989, directed by Michele Suave. In medieval times, Knights of the Teutonic Order massacre a village of alleged devil worshippers. All the bodies are put in a mass grave, buried, and then a giant cross is used as a seal on top. A young girl named Latte witnesses this. A church is built on the grave. In modern times, the church gets a new librarian named Evan. He starts hanging out with an artist named Lisa who finds a piece of parchment while renovating the church. Latte is also at the church and still the same age. 
Evan translates what's on the parchment and locates a seal it refers to. He opens the seal and becomes possessed. Another man named Herman becomes possessed also and ends up setting off a mechanism that locks a bunch of people in the church. Herman appears to kill a teacher who's trapped inside. A priest named Father Gus sets off a mechanism that makes the church collapse and kill everyone inside except Latte. Latte goes to the ruins of the church and the seal opens again, possessing her. Knights of the Teutonic Order, Father Gus, Possessed Herman, and a subway train are the killers. Some punks try to find another exit out of the church and end up in the subway where one of them is hit and killed by a train. Maybe everyone was already dead when Father Gus initiated the church's self-destruct sequence, but I find that unlikely. As you can probably tell from the summary, the plot of the church doesn't make a lot of sense. The all-over-the-place plot does make a lot more sense once you know that this was originally going to be the third movie in the Demons series. You know, the Dario Argento and Lamberto Bava movies, where in the sequel, people were possessed after demons jumped out of a TV. Yeah, the series never really cared about making sense. Michele Suave didn't want the church to be part of the Demon series, so he rewrote the screenplay and removed all the relations to the series. He wanted the movie to be more sophisticated and not pizza schlock, a phrase he used to refer to the Demon films in an interview. I love the phrase pizza schlock and wish it caught on. The church is kind of a mess. The plot is barely cohesive. That's what happens when you have eight writers credited in some way or another. A lot of neat stuff is packed into the movie, like a demon embracing a naked woman with an anaconda at their feet. The image is a recreation of the Vampire's Kiss fantasy painting by Boris Vallejo. I originally thought it was a reference to Lilith. There is some great effects work that brings creatures to life. Evan turns into a giant goat demon gargoyle that looks incredible. A reflection of Herman shows him to have a cool demon face. At one point, a muddy pile of bones and bodies rises from the floor, which is interesting even though the execution wasn't spectacular. Some other neat looking stuff in the movie includes the old corpse of the architect that made the church on a bed of spinning gears and the demonic goat head seal that Evan opens. The gore effects are practical and great. Herman impales himself on a jackhammer. The punk that gets hit by a train turns into a gooey mess. A teacher has a spiky gate rammed into her neck, and Evan pulls his own heart out. Sure, he pulls it from the wrong part of his chest, but he still does it, darn it. The acting is mostly terrible. Evan is played by Thomas Arana and Father Gus by Hugh Corshi. They're alright. Barbara Capisti plays Lisa and she isn't great here. The church drags quite a bit, but it does have some hilarious moments scattered throughout. I laughed when Lisa dives through a window. A bishop yells he is the church before jumping backwards to his death and when the punk is splattered by the train that comes out of nowhere. Like the Michele Suave movie I covered last episode, Stage Fright, the church ends up being about a bunch of people locked in a building. I thought that was an interesting coincidence. The cinematography and score are also a delight, just like in Stage Fright. 
Goblin had a part in the church score. The church can be an entertaining time if you watch it with some joke-cracking friends. I don't recommend watching this quietly by yourself, though. For those of you that dig old architecture, the church used in the movie is the Matthias Church in Budapest, which was originally built in the 11th century, then rebuilt in the 15th. Number 3. They Come Knocking 2019, directed by Adam Mason After the death of his wife, a dad and his two daughters, Claire and Maggie, go to a camping site to spread the mom's ashes. On the way to the campsite, Claire sees a strange hooded child. Once at the campsite, two strange hooded children show up in the middle of the night and ask if they can come in. The family doesn't let them in. Claire has started seeing the ghost of her mother. The next day, the dad goes looking for help after seeing that the hooded children messed up the family's car. Maggie leaves the camper and Claire goes to find her. The dad finds a man that killed himself after being taunted by the hooded kids. The family reunites and has to deal with a bunch of hooded kids. Ghost Mom also pops up and tries to persuade the family into letting her in. Maggie lets her in and disappears. The dad realizes he needs to let the mom go, so he pours out her ashes and everything is okay. The hooded children and cancer are the killers. Yeah, I'm gonna count those darn kids. They drove that one man to suicide. I'm not 100% sure what the mom had, but based on what's shown, cancer makes sense. They come knocking. How's the latest installment of Hulu Into the Dark? We're back to basics, folks. Into the Dark returned to its terrible roots. I hate to say that this movie is bad, because the hooded kids in this movie legitimately creeped me out. I really did not like having to look at them. Up until the dad is attacked by the hooded kids for the first time, I found them to be crazy unsettling. I watch a ton of horror movies, as you know, and rarely feel any sense of fear or dread. Sure, there are certain movies that inspire those feelings in me, but it's a rarity. The hooded kids in They Come Knocking skeeved me out. Normally, I'd find silly hooded monster kids hilarious, so I'm not sure exactly why these creepy kids worked for me. Something about their faces. I'm assuming masks were used. The kids are wearing those full black contacts and their faces have this creepy permanent smile. I know, what I'm explaining doesn't sound scary at all, but I really did not like looking at these little monsters. They're disturbing like the lollipop kids in The Wizard of Oz. Now, the scare factor of the They Come Knocking kids definitely wears off after the dad is rushed by a bunch of the tiny hoodlums as roaring monster sounds are played, but up until they go full dumb sound effect monsters, they spooked me. Kudos to whoever designed and brought the hoodlums to life. I'm not sure what team was responsible, so I can't shout out the creators by name. So I just gushed about the look of the hoodie children working. What about other stuff in the movie? Nothing else really worked. I hated the dumb idea to have random child laughing and whispering sounds added throughout the movie, even when the kids aren't around. Having the kids sing while walking away after the first big encounter fell completely flat for me and was way too cheeseball. When your monster kids look this creepy, you don't need to add sound effects you found in a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese. This isn't the first time Hulu has had something 
that's legitimately creepy only to waste the creepiness on a dumb story. Remember that mask in the treehouse? That was spooky. If the kids in They Come Knocking were given to a director and writer that knew how to put a complete, compelling story together, a truly horrifying movie could have been made. Once the creepy kids come a-knocking, I couldn't care less about this family struggle with grief over the mom's recent passing. Mom is already dead. Y'all will be too if you don't figure out how to deal with these demon kids. The family should be freaking out, especially after the car's been made unusable and the dad reveals he found a dead guy. Why is everyone so nonchalant about the dire situation they're in? Is it an acting issue? None of the actors have any depth. The dad is played by Clayne Crawford, who also was in The Perfect Host. Unlike that movie, Niles Crane isn't in They Come Knocking to distract you from Crawford's poor performance. Maggie, the youngest daughter, is written as if she's a witty genius. She's like 12, but always has a perfect comeback to anything thrown her way. She's a complete jerk to her older sister, and the dad just sits by and lets Maggie use Claire as a punching bag. If Claire says anything even slightly mean to Maggie, the dad's like, hey, you cut that out. The dad sucks, Maggie sucks, she's insufferable and completely unsympathetic. I guarantee you will want to see Maggie die. You'll be praying to the hoodlums to murder Maggie, which you think they do. Yep. Maggie lets the evil into the camper and is then found dead, surrounded by blood by Claire. It's incredible. I cheered. I literally shouted, this is the best Hulu Into the Dark movie ever after seeing dead Maggie. Unfortunately, Maggie was actually alive. Damn writers. This movie was written by Shane and Carrie Van Dyke. Here's some advice. If you write a completely unlikable brat into your movie, it's totally cool to kill them off, even if they are a kid. Your audience will love it. Your audience will despise a half measure where you kill off the annoying character then bring them back. I can't overstate how annoying and awful Maggie is as a character. That little turd sandwich. Besides the awful sound effect choices surrounding the hoodlum characters, part of the score has a strange noise in it that I thought was coming from something in the movie. It's like a weird thud mixed with rattling sound. I was waiting for the source of the sound to be revealed, only to realize it's part of the score for absolutely no reason. Another unnecessary addition in the movie is a pointless quote attributed to Anonymous in the beginning about black-eyed kiddos that come a-knockin'. That quote doesn't bring anything to the table. It doesn't make the kids scarier. It doesn't explain exactly what they are. It's just a weird attempt at exposition. Looks like black-eyed children is some new paranormal legend I haven't heard of before, but knowing about the legend doesn't change anything. They come knocking like so many Hulu Into the Dark movies, could have been an amazing short film about spooky kids, but instead is a drawn-out mess that heavily pads its runtime by showing copious flashbacks of events the viewers already seen, over and over. I give this movie a very soft recommendation on the condition that you watch it like a short film. Here's the Josh Baker cut. Watch the movie up until the point where the dad hits a hoodlum with the shovel and sees that it has no effect. 
Once that happens, pretend that the hoodlums killed the family and turn off They Come Knocking. One last thing that heavily bothered me, Claire, the dad's biological daughter, emphasis on her not being a stepdaughter, continuously calls her dad Nathan for no reason. No one calls their biological parents by their first name continuously like Claire does in the movie. Number 4, The Beyond, 1981, directed by Lucio Fulci. In the past, a mob kills a man named Schweik, who's accused of being a warlock after they find him in a hotel in Louisiana. In the present, a woman named Liza inherits the hotel and decides to reopen it. A worker falls after seeing a woman with strange eyes. The worker is taken to the hospital by Dr. John McCabe. People at the hotel start dying. A plumber is attacked and killed by a demon while investigating the hotel's flooded basement. More people die at the hospital. A blind woman named Emily shows up and warns Liza to leave the hotel. Emily has been the same age since Schweik died and appears to be a ghost. The dead start coming back to life and everyone but Liza and John end up dead. The duo try to exit the hospital, but impossibly find themselves in the basement of the hotel. Since the basement is a gate to hell, the couple end up stuck in hell. An angry mob, a fall, a demon, acid, tarantulas, ghouls, zombie Joe, a dog that is possibly a zombie, and Dr. John are the killers. I think that's all the killers. Don't worry about following that plot summary. From my short time with Lucio Fulci, it doesn't appear he cares too much about the plot in his films. I put Dr. John on the killer list because he shoots a window, which sends shards of glass flying into a guy named Dr. Harris's face. Now, I've watched the incident a few times, kind of like a referee reviewing game footage, and even though it does appear that there is a supernatural element in play that causes the broken glass to curve towards Dr. Harris, there was absolutely no reason for Dr. John to shoot the window in the first place. Oh, pet warning, maybe, who knows? A dog might die defending its undead ghost owner from zombies. The dog has some blood on his head after fending off the fiends and does turn on his owner and murder her, even though I'm pretty sure she's supposed to be a ghost or something. It's possible the dog died and became a zombie dog or was just tired of ghost Emily. It's hard to tell who's alive, dead, a zombie, a ghost, or a demon in the beyond. Since the plot is all over the place, how's the gore at least? Well, as you can probably tell from the killer list, there is death aplenty and varied gore. There are multiple sequences of faces melting that didn't really work for me. We don't get a skull reveal from the one face that has acid splashed all over it. Like Fulci's other film covered on this episode, there is some terrible zombie makeup. Luckily, only Schweik's zombie looks completely terrible. Zombie Joe has an off face, but it's not that bad. Some random zombies at the end have flesh missing from parts of their heads, which looks really good. Fulci loves him some eye horror, so of course Joe's eyes are ripped out by a demon hand. A woman named Martha also has an eye pop out, 
after Zombie Joe pushes the back of her head onto the back end of a nail that's protruding out of a wall. That's the best eye-popping scene in the movie, for sure. Back to the bad gore, Dr. John has a revolver that rarely runs out of bullets. He uses it to shoot zombies. Body shots look okay with little practical blood explosions, but all the zombie headshots look terrible. I'm assuming something like a low-powered paintball gun with crappy-looking red paint was used to add the tiny blood splatters on the zombies' foreheads. It's weird, looks bad, and doesn't pack a punch at all. There's a little girl who becomes blind after witnessing true evil and ends up evil herself after the death of her parents. Emily, the little girl, Liza, and John all end up blind in the movie due to witnessing true evil. White glass contacts were used to depict blindness and confirmed by the cast to be horribly uncomfortable to wear. They look great though. Dr. John has to shoot the evil little blind girl in the head and the entire front of her face explodes. It's amazing. I wish the same effort went into the zombie headshots. A character has a run-in with a bunch of tarantulas, but unfortunately the person in charge of wrangling up the spiders could only find about two because all the others on screen are obviously fake puppets. Calling them puppets is generous. It's hard to be creeped out when you're watching a man being eaten alive by stiff, fake spiders. Emily being eaten alive by her dog looks much better. Sure, the dog head that bites her looks like a dog puppet a grade school teacher would use to teach a class about pooches, but the gore left by the vicious pup et looks fantastic. I'm talking ripped out neck and an ear chomped off. Practical and fun. Bad dog. The other notable gore comes from the mob whacking Schweik with chains. Sure, the sound effects of the chains hitting his flesh don't fit at all, and the gore probably doesn't really match what it would look like if you actually were slapped with chains, but the big gashes left by the chains as they tore through cloth and flesh looked fantastic. As expected, the acting in the beyond is beyond terrible. I don't think an explanation is really necessary here. The Lucio Fulci movies I've seen so far have been vessels for gore. Like Zombie, The Beyond has the gore, but nothing else really going for it. The score and camera work are better this time around though. I did enjoy this loose plot a lot more than Zombies. I don't recommend The Beyond to casual horror viewers. You should only really be watching movies like this if you find Italian horror fascinating. For people that are just looking for a good movie, watch Event Horizon instead. It's practically the same movie, gateways to hell and whatnot. You can also listen to a song off Europe's first album, titled Seven Doors Hotel, which is based on the beyond. I didn't mention that a fictional book from the Cthulhu mythos titled Ibon makes an appearance in the beyond. The book may be the catalyst for everything that happens. I guess the movie can loosely be considered cosmic horror. Number 5, Cemetery Man, originally titled Della Morte Della More, 1994, directed by Michele Suave. Francisco Della Morte is in charge of a cemetery along with his assistant Nagi. Nagi is only able to say na. 
The dead have started rising and Francisco has to put them back in the ground. He meets a widow and falls in love with her. Her husband comes back as a zombie and bites her. She is said to have died from fright. She comes back to life and Francisco shoots her. The bullet grazes the top of her head and she dies. Nagi falls for the mayor's daughter, Valentina. She dies, comes back to life, and becomes Nagi's girlfriend as a severed head. The widow comes back to life again, which makes Francisco think he actually killed her. Death tells Francisco to stop killing the dead. Valentina kills her father and Francisco shoots her head. Francisco meets women that look exactly like the widow, but things don't work out with them. One decides she wants to be with the mayor and the other is a prostitute. Francisco kills the prostitute and some other people, but his friend Franco is blamed for all the deaths. Franco had killed his wife and child. Francisco confronts Franco about stealing the credit for his kills, and Franco says he doesn't know him. No one will acknowledge that Francisco has killed people. Francisco and Nagi attempt to leave the town, only to realize they can't escape. Nagi is now able to talk, and Francisco can only say, nah. The camera zooms out to reveal everything is in a snow globe. Francisco, reckless driving, Valentina's head, and Franco are the killers. Some punks on a motorcycle are being reckless and end up causing a huge accident that not only kills a bunch of them, but a bus full of Boy Scouts. Geez, ah, that summary was incredibly long. I feel like I'm getting a little long-winded when explaining the goings-ons in the movies, so I'll try to shorten things again moving forward. I do think it was important to really go into detail for this Cemetery Man summary though, since the movie has a lot more going on than what the basic plot summary would lead you to believe. Here's the IMDB plot summary. A cemetery man must kill the dead a second time when they become zombies. That summary is misleading, even though that's technically part of the plot. Cemetery Man, or the more interesting original title, De La Morte De La More, which translates to of death of love, is more of an introspective look into death and love than a silly zombie comedy. Sure, the movie has campy slapstick zombie moments, like when Valentina's bodiless head flies across a room to munch on her father's neck, but the movie spends more time on existentialism than goofs. That's probably why I myself, a lover of camp and schlock, didn't end up enjoying Cemetery Man, the title I'll be using from now on solely due to the fact that it contains less syllables, as much as others. I definitely came in with the wrong expectations. I want to note here that I respect the movie and find the structure and themes intriguing. Definite kudos for its uniqueness. For me personally, a lot of the comedy fell flat. Don't get me wrong, there are a lot of objectively funny moments like Nagi throwing up on his crush, but as a whole, I didn't find Cemetery Man to be all that funny. There's some fun camp like the aforementioned flying head, barf crush, and some other stuff like when chattering boy scout zombies attack Francisco while he's vulnerable in a bathtub. Cemetery Man has the best zombie rising from a grave scene of all time. One of the bikers literally rides his motorcycle out of the grave like some kind of bat out of hell. 
The biker's name is Claudio, and the makeup effects and design for his zombie are magnificent. His helmet is split open, showing brains with random debris sticking out. Zombie Claudio and Valentina both have amazing designs. One of Claudio's groupies is in the graveyard when he comes back, and she allows Claudio to eat her. Francisco finds them and tells her to cut that out, which she responds with, Mind your business, I shall be eaten by whoever I please. I had heard that quote many times before watching Cemetery Man because I like a song with the same title from a band called Stellar Corpses. They summarize the simpler aspects of the movie in the lyrics and include a sample of that quote before the guitar solo. If you decide to check out the song, make sure you listen to the original version off the Respect the Dead EP. The whole EP is great. The gore in Cemetery Mad is practical and a joy to watch. Zombies and living people are shot in the head. Only zombies are whacked in the dome with random items though. Francisco shoots the girl that allows herself to be eaten by her zombie BF before she turns. So I was debating whether or not he should go on the killer list since the girl was probably going to turn into a zombie anyways. I decided I would put him on the list for that, since the movie doesn't outright show anyone being bitten turning into a zombie, the movie doesn't even use the term zombie. The undead are referred to as returners. If any of you are Cemetery Man superfans that have wanted to rip my head off every time I use zombies in this section, I apologize. Francisco cements himself on the killer list by killing more not even bitten, living people anyway. He's kind of an unlikable sad boy. Nagi finally gets a girlfriend, they're going to get married. Sure, she's just ahead, but Nagi was happy, and so was she. Why you gotta go and shoot Nagi's head GF, Francisco? There are some great shots throughout the movie, like the entirety of the flying head sequence, but also some segments that feel cheap. Most of the cheap-feeling shots are outside of the cemetery. Speaking of cheap, there are multiple parts in the movie where you can see strings holding up little ghost balls and moving a fake fly. I'm assuming no one ever thought this movie would be viewed in a higher definition. I enjoyed the score quite a bit. It fits the world well and has a nice, whimsical charm. The acting is a little better than other Italian horror movies I've seen. It's campier too, which works here. There is a bunch of other zaniness in Cemetery Man, like a whole subplot regarding Francisco's obsession with reading phone books and his rumored impotence becoming real impotence with the help of a comically large syringe. This is a dense movie. There's a lot to take in and unpack. Personally, I didn't love Cemetery Man. On paper, it's a movie that should easily be one of my favorites, but the meandering plot lost me about halfway through. Strangely enough, even though I didn't love it, I still recommend it. It's a unique watch and thought-provoking. It also taught me what an ossuary is. An ossuary is a chest, box, building, well, or site made to serve as the final resting place of human skeletal remains. Example, the French catacombs. There are a bunch of really cool ossuaries in Europe that I hope to check out someday. Number 6, The Dead Don't Die. 2019, directed by Jim Jarmusch. A small town is overrun by zombies. Zombies are the killers. That's it. 
That's the entire summary, really. I didn't leave out anything you need to know. So why is this movie almost two hours? Your guess is as good as mine. This is the second Jim Jarmusch movie I've seen. I thought Only Lovers Left Alive was decent overall, but The Dead Don't Die is a dull take on zombie films. Its attempts at being clever and meta don't work or add anything to the movie. Nothing really happens in The Dead Don't Die. The dry humor barely works. There are zero emotional beats. You don't care about any of the characters. Random characters are thrown into the movie for no reason other than to add another name to the trailer. Selena Gomez shows up with two dudes and the trio has no impact on anything and die off screen. There's another trio of younger kids that Jim completely forgets about towards the end of the movie. The Dead Don't Die feels like a film Jim Jarmusch made to give some friends a paycheck. Bill Murray doesn't even attempt to act. None of the other big names in the movie really do anything. Tilda Swinton's oddball Scottish character is kind of fun for the short time she's on screen before being picked up by a UFO. She's an alien for no reason. That reminds me. Walking out of the theater, I heard someone compare this movie to Rubber, which I think is a good comparison. If you don't know what Rubber is, it's a movie about a tire that kills people for, you might have guessed it, no reason. The thing about Rubber is that from the very beginning of the movie, you are told that everything that happens is not going to have any reason behind it. Do I recommend you watch Rubber? Nah. Do I think it's a better film than The Dead Don't Die? Definitely. At least Rubber tried to make something new and unique. If you decide you're going to make a zombie comedy in this day and age, you better make sure it's amazing because your movie will be compared to Shaun of the Dead. The Dead Don't Die doesn't hold a candle to Shaun of the Dead. The Triple D just felt so uninspired. Nothing that happens is fresh or interesting. A monologue that's basically materialism bad is randomly shoehorned in at the end. Maybe I'm being too harsh on The Dead Don't Die. My viewing experience was hindered by a moron that audibly chuckled at every line of dialogue in the movie. Dry humor normally doesn't elicit an audible laugh. Normally when someone finds dry humor funny, they'll grin, think it's clever, and laugh quietly to themselves. Not this dude next to me. He literally giggled throughout the entire first two-thirds of the movie until he got tired. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to shame someone for laughing at jokes while watching a comedy. I'm shaming someone for laughing at regular lines of dialogue that are in no way jokes that no one else in the theater is laughing at. If you watch The Dead Don't Die, which I don't recommend, obviously, and think the film is a complete... 103 minutes laugh riot please let me know i know i'm a grumpy grouch but i think i'm in the right here i hope adam driver received a nice in-depth massage after filming the dead don't die because his back must have hurt something fierce driver carries all of the enjoyment you can get out of this movie solely on his back he's great in this his delivery is on point. This is my first time seeing him in a comedic role, unless you count Force Awakens, and I think he's a great comedic actor. Besides Adam Driver's performance, I also liked that instead of blood, dust shot out of the zombies whenever they were shot or had a limb or head cut off. It's a neat idea. Dang, 
That's pretty much all of my positives when it comes to The Dead Don't Die. I thought the fourth wall breaking from Adam Driver about the movie's theme song constantly popping up and having received the script was fun, albeit unnecessary. To be fair, the entire movie is unnecessary. Unless you're a huge Jim Jarmusch fan, don't waste your time with The Dead Don't Die. Watch any other zombie movie and you'll find more enjoyment. I saw someone say that without Jim Jarmusch's name attached to this movie, it would be completely panned, and I fully agree with that sentiment. Number 7, Black Mirror, Season 5, 2019, created by Charlie Brooker. Why am I covering this? Is Black Mirror even horror anymore? Was it ever horror? I'd say that the early seasons of Black Mirror had some decent horror elements, but when it comes to season 5, the only terrifying thing about the show is the writing. I think all fans of the series would agree that the show has been declining in quality overall. Unlike the other Netflix-funded seasons, season 5 is only 3 episodes, like the first 2 seasons of the show. You'd think with Netflix cutting back to only 3 episodes, the 3 released would be solid. Wrong! Every episode is bad. Some suffer from garbage acting. All of them suffer from bad writing. The first episode is Striking Vipers, and it might be one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Striking Vipers opens itself wide for all sorts of hilarious commentary. I don't even want to spoil it. If you haven't watched it yet, I recommend watching it with some friends and drinks. So many jokes can be made given how insane the premise is. I'm going to spoil the premise now, so pause and watch it yourself if you don't want it to be spoiled. Last warning. Here we go. Striking Vipers is about two guys that loved playing fighting video games growing up. They both get older and one has a wife and kid. Since this is Netflix Black Mirror and things from previous episodes are recycled, this episode has the virtual world from San Junipero, except that world is used to play video games. We have to reference other episodes as many times as possible now. The two guys, protagonist, whose name I forgot, and Carl start fighting and striking vipers, where they can now feel the hits and whatnot. This obviously leads to them banging. The human race is a bunch of perverts. If you give your virtual reality fighting game characters genitalia, human perverts are going to start doing it in your video game. Carl plays a lady character and protagonist plays a boring dude. They bang a bunch. They never switch characters, which is probably the hardest thing to believe in the entire episode. Protag asks what it's like to be a girl, but doesn't just switch to find out. Protag stops banging Carl in the video game. Carl tries to find someone else in the game to bang. He bangs a bunch of people playing different characters trying to find the same passion he had with Protag. He even bangs the polar bear character. Eventually, Protag comes clean and tells his wife he's been banging Carl in a video game. Unfortunately, we don't get to see him reveal this information. That conversation must have been amazing. His wife's cool with it though, and she lets him bang Carl in the video game once a month. While she goes out that night and tries to pick up dudes in real life like a normie idiot. Why would anyone do it in real life if you could just bang Carl in a video game? 
Striking Vipers is by far the funniest episode. There's also an episode that stars Miley Cyrus as a pop star, a stretch I know. It's incredibly ham-fisted and silly. Miley tries to abandon being a pop star, so her controlling aunt drugs her into a coma by putting an obscene amount of crushed up pills in some tacos and steals songs from her comatose brain because that's totally possible. It's dumb. Who would have known that Miley Cyrus isn't a great actor? Lots of dumb stuff happens in that episode, which is almost as funny as Striking Vipers, but no one bangs in a video game. The best episode is the middle one where a man takes a dude hostage and demands to speak to the universe's Mark Zuckerberg that's played by Eric Foreman. The whole message of the episode is Facebook bad, which is incredibly original and thought-provoking. I mean the opposite of that, but the acting in this one is the strongest. Andrew Scott plays the kidnapper and he's fantastic. His performance is so good that I was able to ignore how dumb the reveal is. His character reveals that he had to check his notifications while driving because he was super addicted to Facebook. He took his eyes off the road, crashed, and his passenger fiancé died. That's totally Topher Grace's fault. Season 5 of Black Mirror has zero legitimately good episodes, but I still had fun watching it, especially Striking Vipers. I'll be right back. Gotta bang Carl in a video game. There you have it folks, Blank is the Killer 47, Island Zombies, Demon Ghouls, and Unruly Returners has been shoved back in the grave. I wish I had more recommendations in this episode. I don't regret watching any of the movies, except maybe The Dead Don't Die. If you like this episode, you can rate Blank is the Killer on iTunes. Doing that allegedly helps get more peepers on it. If you hate iTunes, you can email me directly at blankisthekiller at gmail.com with any questions, concerns, corrections, recommendations, basically anything you want. Speaking of corrections, during one of this year's holiday episodes, I said my mom liked the movie Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. She informed me that she never said she liked that dumpster fire of a movie. A big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website. Go check out StickerFridge.com. The next episode of Blank is the Killer will be up on June 30th. That's Cat and Sailor Moon's birthday. Until then, make sure that your love interest is in fact a zombie before laying them to rest again. They might have just been sleeping.